Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and thank you so much for tuning into this week's Food for Thought, a podcast that's on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, author of Renourish, A Simple Way to Eat Well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each of the 12 episodes, I'll be joined by guests, all of whom are experts in their field, so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with trusted expert advice. Losing weight is rarely easy. You need to find the mix of eating and lifestyle habits that are best for you. But that being said, there are some universal tips to follow, and many of them are not the ones you think you should be following. This week's Food for Thought sees registered dietitian Nicola Ludlam-Rain and I explore how we can lose weight naturally. Hello, Nick. Hi, Ree. I think today's podcast is a really important one to discuss because we've got statistics from the government now that say that 28% of UK adults are obese and a further 36% are overweight. So I guess it's not as simple as saying, well, why is this? But could you outline perhaps where the problem is stemming from? So, I mean, obviously weight gain is multifactorial, but I think the leading change like over, say, like the last decade is the new, it's what we call an obesogenic environment. So it basically means that society that we live in is almost like it's conditioned for people to gain weight because we've got so many labor-saving devices. We've got Mm. cars, we've got washing machines. So we're not expending as much energy as we used to. We're not walking to work. We're not doing factory work. We're sitting in front of a laptop all day. And often we're doing it in a house, so we're not even leaving a house now. And then second of all, it's the sheer availability of food so it's that delivery 24 7 it's the fast food mcdonald's open all hours so all of these really high calorie foods that taste amazing food manufacturers know what they're doing that delicious Mm. combination of like fat sugar salt um and the two obviously just go hand in hand to people gaining weight steadily over time, maybe not realizing it. You know, for example, over the last year, over lockdown, you know, wearing stretchy, comfy clothes, and then it just happens. So it's not necessarily the fault of the individual. It's 100% our environment that leads 
and causes weight gain. Of course, there are other factors like genetics and other things, but environmental issues have got a big part to play. They really do. Um, I remember my master's was on obesity risks and prevention and the environment we surround ourselves in. It just speaks volume. But you mentioned something there that I think we should go into a little bit, and that's how the manufacturers know what they're doing. And I find that as well really interesting because obviously the more palatable the food, we do have studies now on humans and animals that it does light up a reward center in the brain. However, there's a lot of conflicting information, isn't there, between what is called, I'm just going to say what people are referring to as food addiction. And I guess the question is, um, I'd love you to divulge, is are we addicted to food? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because the research shows that, for example, like heroin and nicotine are addicted, are addicted to substances. Food is not. However, Mm. food lights up that pleasure part of the brain. So then we get a feel good feeling from it and then we want to have more. So food isn't addictive like these other substances. However, food is a coping strategy. You know, we don't just eat out of hunger. We eat out of different feelings, happiness, sadness, boredom. And it's what you call a pacifier of emotions where if you're feeling uncomfortable in yourself, Food is a distraction and it temporarily almost like dulls the emotion that that we're feeling. So then people use it as a coping strategy. And also things like, you know, chocolate tastes good. And then if things taste good, then you want to eat more and more of it. Um, And especially like that delicious combination of that fat and sugar, mix it together. What if you've got ice cream? So Mm. food isn't (laughs) addictive. However, people can, yes, rely on it for coping strategies. And when that happens too often, that's when people can run into problems. So having, you know, the odd, you know, tub of Ben and Jerry's, um, let's say you've broken up with somebody once in a blue moon is not an issue. It's people who, for example, might be feeling sad on a regular basis and then turning to food rather than other coping strategies and then moving forward and and, and out of that almost like feeling of, of of lowness and depression for some people, which they can then go on to feeling. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology in place here. So we, we've got the environment, of course, which is way different to what it used to be. We know that we can access food. We've got the reward centers in the brain, so kind of biological response there. Now, the psychology, as we've just said, that has a huge impact, I think, on the actions that we embark upon. And is it something that in your line of work is is discussed as well? I guess, do you have the opportunity in a clinic to refer to a psychologist frequently or is it an area you feel needs a lot more attention? I think, of course, I'd say, I'd always say we do need more focus and awareness of the role that psychologists can play. However, I think I'm quite lucky. So I, I work both privately and for the NHS in bariatric services, which is weight loss services for people with a BMI of like over 40, 50, 60. And we can directly refer to psychology. I will say though that over the last year, their services have been extremely stretched because they've mm. been prioritizing the COVID cases and colleagues, so people who are working within the COVID industry. However, for people who I see just weight loss clinics wise, um, most communities, most councils have a way of putting you in touch with a psychologist of some sort or a counsellor. It's often known as IAPT, I-A-P-T, and that stands for Increasing Access to Psychology Services or Therapies. And if you Google it, you can more often than not 
find the psychologist services in your area or your GP can refer to them. So you, that's free through the NHS. And then of course you can pay for things like psychology and counselling, but it can get expensive. Yeah, so depending on what people need, the services are there, but it will depend on where you live. Yeah, exactly. And I think as well, when it comes to focusing on mental health and, and the reasons behind it, that can lead in itself, can't it, to potentially even regaining a, a healthy weight if you've if you've gone past or I guess in both directions below or above that, it can have a, a big impact, can't it? Yeah, 100%. And I think the people who I meet definitely in the area of bariatrics, it's very rare for someone to come through not having experienced some sort of mental health issue in the past, whether that be through um, an upbringing or more recently through a depressive episode or needing antidepressants. So if that isn't tackled, then chances are it will reoccur. And then the consequences of that might be weight regain because then people go back to old coping strategies. Mm, Yeah. And I guess they experience weight stigma. So I think something that isn't discussed about enough as well in the area of especially being overweight or obese is a, is a level of, of weight stigma that comes with that and then perhaps even not seeking out help um how would you urge somebody or what are your thoughts straight away on, on that particular area yeah so i think weight stigma unfortunately does exist um, and i think the key is to confide or go to a healthcare professional who you trust and who knows you so for example like you might have your favorite GP um, and it's to almost stick with them and then if you are unhappy with a, a certain doctor or healthcare professional it's you have the right to request to even move surgeries which I have known patients to do or request you know a different dietitian or nutritionist if you're not happy um, but hopefully I think the majority of, of healthcare professionals don't have weight stigma but it it does exist because of of decades of of what society has conditioned us to believe and think yeah it's a really tricky a tricky area but one that i think needs to be addressed and that's why i'm really glad we've got you on the podcast to discuss it because obviously no one's saying that it's healthy to be a certain weight or size but there's so much more we can't see that's not based on numbers and I think that's incredibly important but if we do just focus now on the discussion on obesity what are the risks with being obese just for our listeners to know and even some of the lesser known ones yeah so I mean gaining weight it comes with risks and risks just mean that it may or may not happen to you so for example in my bariatric practice yes I see patients who have gained weight and they may have increased risk of high blood cholesterol high blood pressure and then that puts you at unfortunately at an increased risk of things like stroke heart disease heart attack and also things like sleep apnea where if you have a lot of fat for example like around your neck it can cause you during the night to wake up but but you're not waking up consciously and that leads you the next day to feeling really tired or you might be at risk of falling asleep whilst driving so not a lot of people know about the sleep apnea having said that though i do see a lot of people um for example with even with a bmi 50 who have got perfect cholesterol levels um no high blood pressure they don't have type 2 diabetes however the caveat is that often those people have got joint pain and 
they're complaining that they've got a lack of energy and all they want to do is play with their kids or their grandkids. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to go on a, a plane and feel comfortable or walk more than 100 yards. So I think it's almost the latter of what I've just said that Im impacts people more because from a high cholesterol point of view, yes, we've got medications and you can change your diet. But if you're carrying, for example, like 20 stone on a, a, a skeletal frame that isn't designed that, it's very hard to combat without weight loss. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's, um, I guess there's also the element of fertility. Is that something that is discussed a lot within your clinic? Yeah, so we do get a lot of referrals for ladies who are perhaps struggling to conceive um, or who want IVF and the IVF guidelines are that you have to have a BMI of under 30. So we do work a lot with ladies who are aiming for that magic figure. Um, what tends to happen though, is that when ladies do lose weight, they find that their periods almost are normalized and their fertility, especially after bariatric surgery, can go mm. through the roof. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. And although you can argue that some people are healthier than others at certain body weights, unfortunately, that IVF service, they've got to have that cut off. And it's just because if you are at a slightly lower body weight, that BMI of less than 30, there's an increased chance that your IVF will be successful. And that's all anybody ever wants. Of course it is. And I think BMI in itself, if we go there, there are so many mixed opinions on it. And more recently at the time recording this episode, it is being petitioned to um, change or well accepted rather that it, it's outdated and something needs to be done. But of course, it's such a useful tool. And you've just used an example um, that, you know, you need to have a cutoff point and the research does suggest that it may be more successful with IVF. But do you think it should be scrapped altogether? So yeah, there's a really interesting question. <laughs> I think the BMI, it was designed to use at, at a population level. So for example, in my bariatric surgery, we accept people directly with a BMI of above 50. Um, and that's just because the research shows that it's really hard for these people to lose weight with conventional methods, whether that's going to like a commercial commercial slimming weight class on a weekly basis, or even just seeing a reg registered nutritionist or dietitian. So at a population level, I think it can be quite useful and especially for research purposes, as you've just mentioned. However, we shouldn't be judging people or looking at people from a BMI point of view. And I almost take BMI out of the equation and I go by, well, A, how people are feeling in themselves, but also their, their other markers, for example, like the cholesterol levels, the blood pressure, the diabetes, for example, what are their blood glucose levels doing? And we look at other things. And also we look at the quality of the diet because the research shows that you don't have to lose weight to be healthier. For example, if you up your oily fish and your whole grains and your fruits and veggies, you've got a reduced chance of things like heart attacks, irrespective of your weight. Yeah, and I guess it's thanks to professionals like you, I suppose. That's why we really need to get more people that are you know, willing to look at things in that way as well, because... I guess the conversation on that could continue that there's there's a lot that we could say on that particular area but you also mentioned their support groups so what are your opinions on clubs like Slimming World or Weight Watchers what are your thoughts on those? 
Yeah, so I've got mixed opinions because obviously like working in bariatrics, we see the extremes and most men and women, well, I say most women who I see have been through decades of these slimming classes. So you could say that they eventually or most of the, most people fail with them because they work for a finite period of time. Because I always say that all diets work to some degree, but in the short term, because when you go on something, you're going to come off it. And that's what patients mm. tell me day in, day out. They say, I can lose like two, two, three stone with Slimming World Weight Watchers, but then it's what happens after. So it's after the after. Um, what I will say though, is the aspects that I love. I love the weekly support that they get. I love some of the healthy recipes, but then I don't love almost kind of, I think some of these classes t mask what healthy eating actually is. And they try to complicate it, for example, by adding points or these like super slimmer foods. And then in one class, I think they say that you can have as much carbohydrate as possible as you like, whereas that isn't good for somebody with diabetes, for example. So there are definitely pros and cons. So I'm not against them. However, I'm not sure if they work in the long term, but they do help to teach some good things. So, for example, if I've got a lady who um, knows the Slimming World recipes day in, day out, um, she knows them, she's had bariatric surgery, she can then apply those recipes to after bariatric surgery. So they've definitely got benefits, but they're not the be all and end all. Yeah, no, really, really well explained there. Thank you for going into those. Like you say, if you start anything different, you know, you're going to... Um, see a result it's just whether or not you can keep up to that so what are one of the many things that you do then in order to treat obesity and just to say to Alice's when I'm discussing this we're, we're using obesity because it's the term that is well it's the term that is that we use isn't it Nick that's the thing I think it's become mm -hmm. almost again another gray area with the language that we use have you experienced this yeah, and I think it, I completely agree. It's a word that we might discuss, for example, in multidisciplinary team clinics mm. or in research papers, but you don't use it day to day with patients. Like you just don't. Um, they might have been referred due to a BMI of over 30 and I might have used the word a handful of times, but then always follow up with an explanation. And, and there's always been a reason why I've mentioned it, but I wouldn't, yeah, mention that word in clinic because there's just no need to. Yeah. No, 100%. So what are some of the things you would do in clinic um, in order to help somebody prepare for a surgery? Yeah, so I mean, bariatric surgery is a major operation, but and it has to be like the end of the line. So you have to have tried lots of different things. And then ultimately, things have, have failed to give you the results that you desire. So I suppose before bariatric surgery, it's a lot of preparation with regards to what will life be like after surgery. And it's also managing expectations in that surgery isn't a miracle tool. I remember one lady, she thought that bariatric surgery was literally removing fat from her body and all mm. it is is making your stomach smaller so all it does is it gives you a massive push in the in the right direction and it does help to manage hunger initially but then hunger comes back and you want hunger to come back because that's what keeps you alive but it's about explaining that after surgery you've got such a smaller stomach so you will be eating off a tea plate for life and if you push your stomach it can stretch or for example, you might be sick, which can lead to other complications. So it's about managing that. And also when it comes to hunger, 
yes, we've got that stomach hunger, which you, which you feel when you haven't eaten for several hours, but also you've got that head hunger and heart hunger and surgery doesn't do anything about that. So head hunger is like those cravings. So for example, um, it might be the time of the month or you see somebody else eating or an advert comes on the TV. And then heart hunger is the emotional side, for example, like breakups or feeling sad. And it's about helping patients to deal with the head hunger and the heart hunger when mm. food is taken out of the equation. I mean, food is always there. Things like biscuits and crisps go, go down quite easily, but we want to develop different coping strategies. So I think it's the coping strategies that we look at and also a psychologist will help with as well. Yeah, and I, I can agree, the psychology. So you've got the two really important elements there. It's a huge adjustment for someone to live the rest of their life eating in such a small you know quantity i think we, we tend to eat as humans also with with our eyes don't we? we we get a lot of satisfaction from seeing um portion sizes colors on the plate all that sort of thing and then we've got nostalgic elements the psychology the way it links back to our comforts and the way we do so i suppose once you've had this surgery your entire outlook and the way that you cope with situations has to change and I guess preparing food fast food all of this around I mean would you say fast food for instance I, that I'm just defining things that are high in sugar fat and and salt um, mm. that are out there is that one of the major contributors or is it just that we're eating too much do you know what? It's different things for different <laughs> people. So, for example, somebody might be really into their, their high fat, high sugar foods, um, but then other people might be actually eating really healthily when it comes to food quality. But then, yeah, their, their portion sizes might be too much. Or you might get someone who isn't just snacking throughout the day, they're grazing throughout the day, which is basically almost like constantly eating and I remember a surgeon always used to say, you can fill a bath with a dripping tap. So if after surgery, you carry on that grazing mentality, the calories will go in. So yes, I think fast food is there, but it can be lots of different things. And also like we haven't mentioned, for example, alcohol. So like the mm. liquid calories which go in and don't tend to fill us up. And I think the emotional side, especially after surgery, like I remember once a guy, he almost said that he regretted surgery because he could no longer go down to the pub and consume like 10 pints of beer with his mates. So it's about counseling people with regards to how are your friends and family going to react to your relatively rapid weight loss? And also, how are you going to socialize? So lots of different reasons. And it completely depends on the person. I mean, I spoke to someone the other week who was um, not eating all day and then eating the majority of their food in the evening. And of oh. course, after surgery, you've got such a small stomach that you can yeah. no longer do that. And that, that's the reason why after bariatric surgery, I don't advise that people fast, even for religious reasons, especially not in the summer, because of the risk of dehydration. And it's impossible to get those micronutrients and macronutrients that you need, like during nighttime hours, um, without potentially like serious consequences or risks of things like vomiting. Gosh, yeah, I, there's just so much to um, take into account. So alcohol, fast food, food in general, and then what about physical health? So when it comes to exercise, uh, is there a way that, is there criteria that that has to be um, participated in? 
Yeah, so I mean, I always encourage physical activity and always tell people that it will get easier as you lose weight. And of course, I mean, swimming is a good one because it's a non-weight bearing exercise. However, a lot of people are, are conscious about swimming. Um, so then it's about discussing, well, are, is there a certain, for example, like a women's only class that they'd be more comfortable in going into? Or can they take the towel to the edge of the pool um, to increase confidence that way? But the main thing with activity is that somebody enjoys it. And if I can get someone started in exercise before any type of surgery, if they're going for it or not, then great, because that will help to strengthen things like the heart muscle and the respiratory muscles. And I think from my point of view, it's not just about the calorie burn. It's about the impacts on your physical health and your mental health as well. And research mm. shows is that if you're doing something good for your body, for example, taking a proactive step towards exercise, you're then more likely to make healthier food choices. So yeah, exercise does get easier, but the person has to enjoy it because then it's the consistency that is key long-term. Oh, it really is. I think we should also touch on our children here in the future generations because they have been heavily impacted by this obesogenic environment that we mentioned at the beginning, the the food environment that they've grown up in and they live upon a sedentary world with video games and you know less less play outside i mean there's numerous reasons why but it has impacted our children hasn't it what can we do to change this ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so I think it's something that obviously like we've both got babies and toddlers. It's something mm. that I personally am very nervous about because I see almost like the teenagers of nowadays just like spending all their time inside. So I think it's down to parents to almost instill that an allowance that you are allowed to use the technology, but there's a time for it and there's maybe a set limit for it and incorporating active family experiences, for example, on a weekend or on an evening, like a family walk and just building in activity as if it's the norm and it's not a chore, it's something fun. Um, and you know, like we don't have to use the word exercise, it's just movement. Even going to like a crazy golf is getting you out of the house um, and it's getting you moving and interacting. So like, we haven't mentioned the social aspects as well. So yes. like eating, like 
Like, for example, I think the easiest way to explain it is the Mediterranean diet is often seen as one of like the healthiest diets on the planet, but it's not just what the people are eating, it's how they're eating. So they're eating at a table as a family and food isn't eaten on the go like it is in the UK. Like, I think in some countries it'd be really frowned upon like eating on a bus or a train, obviously, pre-COVID. <laughs> Whereas like, we just, you know, we'll eat and, and go because that we're is... so busy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so I think that the social aspect as well, so making a meal out of a meal and if it's your house, it's your boundaries, you know, for example, like no eating in front of the TV or for example, or it's allowed on Friday nights. So you can make these rules. You don't have to go with what, you know, teenagers of nowadays are, are doing. Yeah, I, I mean, 100%. It's it's good that we put it out there and that we try to support people that need help doing that or getting outside or just share some inspiration, I think, because I also think environmental factors also have an influence on our mental health. I think in the way that I always feel, for instance, today is a day where I have not got outside and I am feeling it because when I go for a walk, I just feel more productive. I just feel happier. And there are definitely links, I think, with food consumption and fresh air, and that's a whole other um, whole other area completely. But do you think brands should be more responsible then? So the, the manufacturers and the people that put these marketing messages out there to improve consumers' health? Yeah, and I think a lot has been done, but I think it, a lot could be done in the future. Like a clear example is, for example, like the the traffic light labeling that yeah. isn't it isn't mandatory, it isn't law. However, a lot of really responsible brands have signed up to it, but a lot still don't. And you've got to question, well, why don't they? Why is it all grayed out or blued out on my kid's cereal? Because actually it would be definitely red for sugar. So, and also I think that it's often misleading, like on the front of cereals, it says a 30 gram serving is like hundred and something calories. If you weigh out 30 grams, like there is no way that that would fill an adult. So I think it's about them being a bit more realistic. Um, and yeah, I remember, I think once a, a patient said to me, oh, I really wish that they would just put all the, the diabetic food, all the healthy food in one aisle. Mm -hmm. And I kind of said, well, it's kind of it's kind of already like that because at the front yeah. of the of most supermarkets you've got all the fruits and veggies. So I think supermarkets are trying to do their thing. Um, they're trying to reduce the number of like snacks at the till to reduce things like pester power. Not all supermarkets have done that. So the supermarkets are trying. I think brands are slowly coming on board and they're realizing that people are getting health savvy. They are looking at the ingredients list and I think it's such a shame that sugar can have like so many different names you know, glucose fructose syrup or, for example, like organic cane sugar. Organic cane sugar is just sugar. So I think those brands are being a little bit naughty, but their aim is to sell products and they still want to sell to the health market, the well, the worried well, uh, as so it's called. The worried well, indeed. And I do think, Nick, you're completely right in that I just wish we could campaign that it, it's made legal, that you have to do it, that you have to declare what's in your food and be truthful with the messages. There's, there's such a discord, I think, when it comes to this. And then there's also the argument, well, I want to enjoy my food. I don't want to see all of that on the front of the pack. So it's very difficult, isn't it, to navigate the current food world that we live within? Yeah, and I think there was an argument on should restaurants 
display the calories mm. on the menus and I think so I for example like I liken it to what would I like so and what would I like for my patients and I think if I'm going out for a meal I just want to enjoy it like I personally don't really want to see the calories however for some people who do or let's say they're they're, they're post bariatric surgery and they want to consume a meal that's less than 500 calories, I think the information should be made freely available. Uh, most people have got internet access now, um, so they could go online or let's say put it in the back of the menu, but it shouldn't necessarily be on the front. Um, I think fast food chains though, I think it's great that, that they're on the menu, especially because fast food is tends to be something that we consume more frequently than let's say eating out in a restaurant. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you agree with that, Re. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing. I, like you, can see, I can see it from all different angles. I think about what would help my clients and what world do mm. I want my son to grow up in? Um, what would be beneficial for myself? And I think that we all have a right to know what's inside our food and what's actually there. Um, it's how we choose to display it and how we get that education across. It's it's a very tricky subject, but we do have questions from our listeners for you, Nick, today. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just trying to pick a few that we haven't covered within what we've just discussed. So, oh, this is a good one, Vix. Um, Vix, Vix, V-I-X, not um, Vix as in the, the vapor rub, but Vix. <laughs> Sorry, Vix, I'm saying it. Um, what does a healthy meal actually look like? Yes, I think the easiest way is to talk about it in terms of like what macronutrients or basically just divide your plate into thirds mm. is roughly a third filled with your starchy carbohydrate, for example, like potatoes, rice, pasta for energy is another third filled with some sort of protein, whether that's meat, fish, lentils, beans, tofu, microprotein, also known as corn. And then is the final third to a half filled with your vegetables and salad. And then are you accessorizing rather than basing a meal around your fats. So for example, feta cheese or pumpkin seeds, olive oil. So accessorize with healthy fats, but a third, a third, a third for your carbs, protein, and your veggies. So your fiber and your micronutrients. Lovely, that's perfect. And then something we should have touched on again, Patrick has said, I've heard all a stat works. So they were talking about um, fat loss pills here now, mm. aren't we? But I'm hesitant to buy the pills. Let's discuss these because I think it's quite a risky area. What are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, so about a decade or even more ago, there used to be a lot of weight loss pills on the market. However, quite scarily, they've been removed because of side effects, like some quite serious side effects, including death, which is horrendous. Um, going back to Olistat though, so Olistat is the only prescribable weight loss tablet. The way that it works though, so it works as a fat binder and it has some pretty horrendous side effects in that if you consume it correctly with meals and you eat any fat, you can have anal leakage, which isn't very nice. Mm. Um, it can be good to show, for example, if you don't think that you're consuming a lot of fat, which is the most calorie dense macronutrient, so you get a lot of calories for not a lot of it doesn't look look a lot on your plate, basically. Um, it can teach you where fat is coming from. Um, it can help to further weight loss. So, for example, every three pounds you lose, it, you might help. It might help to lose another pound. Um, from experience, I don't have a very good track record with it. Most patients, well, most patients unfortunately are put on it without seeing a dietitian. So by the time they get to me, they almost, they don't like the tablet because they, it hasn't been explained how it works. Um, and it's not something to be on long-term because we know that 
we need fats in our diet. You need fats for nutrient absorption. So yeah, it's not something that is definitely not a first line for me. Mm. I'd be looking at food diaries, their sleep quality, their stress, rather than going for all this stuff. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Very, very well explained. So we've discussed BMI earlier on. And Millie has raised a good point. She said, I want to know if I am overweight, how do I do this? Is it my waist size? Because obviously we're not, if we're not using BMI, what, what do people do? Yeah, so again, that's really interesting. So you can Google like waist to hip ratio because unfortunately, so we talk about, for example, pear shapes and apple shapes. If you're a pear shape and you tend to store weight on your bum and your thighs, research shows that you are less likely to, for example, develop type 2 diabetes than if you, for example, store weight on your stomach. And where we store weight is mainly linked to genetics. It also, it, like things like stress and alcohol are linked, but it's mainly linked to linked to genetics. So you could have a look at waist circumference and you can Google what range yours should be dependent on your sex. Um, BMI, it's it's a gauge. And I'd say if a BMI is a if your BMI is above 30 and you are suffering from things like high blood cholesterol or high blood pressure or diabetes, then maybe bringing it to a BMI of less than 30 might be beneficial. So I think it it's a good place to start, but it's not the be all and end all. So we've got a question here from um, Abigail and Abigail has said, and this is another area that I think is a bit confusing for people, Nick, that, you know, I, I have heard a lot about health for every size, but I am obese and I have a very high BMI. She hasn't said what, but obviously we know it will be over a certain criteria. Can I follow health for every size? Yes, yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. And you can be healthier at any size. For example, like I said before, like um, improving the quality of your diet and taking part in exercise. However, I think there comes a point where even if we go down that route, sometimes weight loss is the only answer. And let's say I've got a patient with, with a BMI of 50, 55, 60, there's no amount of, of fruits and vegetables or like walking to the shops if they can do that that will get that patient what they need you know if they're getting breathless on standing however if we help them to lose 10 stone that will give them such a better quality of life so there is there's lots of nuance with health at every size and i am pro it definitely for example bmi's of 25 to maybe 35 but then I think once you start reaching above a certain point I think I see I see too many damaging effects of that yeah of th that the weight causes um so I think yeah bariatric surgery definitely does have have a place and weight loss does have a place for certain people it's so individual um however if you're BMI of 30 32 completely happy no issues with your health then there's no reason why you need to lose weight Exactly, exactly. Really good advice there. Now, we're going to move on to the fact or fiction round, Nick. So are you ready for this today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, here we go. Genetics dictate whether you are lean or overweight. I'd say fact. Eating fat is worse for weight gain than sugar. I'd say fact, just because it's more nutrient dense. 
Oh, good choice. Um, More calorie dense, not nutrient dense. Don't worry, no, I, I knew what you meant. I didn't even think <laughs> twice at that one. Um, <laughs> globally, more people are obese than underweight. Do you know what? I actually don't know this. I would say fact for developed countries and probably unlikely for um, less developed countries. Yeah, it's, um, I can't remember where we looked at the stat for that one, but I think that sounds about right. If you are overweight, there's a high chance you'll get diabetes. I'd say there's an increased risk, but it's not inevitable. So semi-fact. <laughs> Perfect. Um, you only lose weight when you count calories. Definitely false. As little as 10 minutes of daily exercise will significantly help manage weight. I say definitely yes, definitely fact, and it also will improve um, your overall health because research shows that going from doing nothing to a little bit is really beneficial, really beneficial. Regular cooking at home will improve your health. I'd say it totally depends on what you're cooking. If you're cooking like desserts and baking, maybe not. But um, if you're spending time in the kitchen and cook, having all vegetables, then yes, fact. Perfect. Malnutrition is only linked with being underweight. Definitely false. And lack of sleep will encourage weight gain. Fact. There we go. Well answered. That was our fact or fiction round. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think that was, do you know what I find so interesting about that um, is, of course, you know, certain questions I think everybody probably thinks is that, oh, you know, the only way to lose weight is if you count calories. But there are so many, you were so definite when you answered that. You're like, no, it is false. But it's yeah. because it's this message that I think we've we've gained in the industry. And it's wrong that it's all about numbers. It's just so wrong, isn't it? Yeah, and often calorie counting can lead to like obsessive behaviours and then some people just, just become immune. So you definitely don't need to count calories. It's yeah about food quality and like ultimately trying to listen to your body and retrain your body, eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full. And that sounds really easy, but it's, it, it does take time. And, and it is hard to do, especially because if you come from a generation of you've got to clean your plate, you've got to finish your plate. Yeah, of course, exactly. It's all psychological. But thank you, Nick. That does nearly wrap up the episode. But we always finish with a food for thought. And I think I'll kick off today's, um, I think just once again, reiterating that, like Nick said, weight stigma does exist. And it's immensely complex. I think it's so important. Something that Nicola said is that we should... Um, you should be asking for help. And if someone isn't there to give it to you fairly in a non-judgmental way, seek out alternative help. Don't give up. You have to keep pushing for it because the world revolves and needs kindness. We need, we need kindness, positivity, education, and ultimately that's what we nutrition health professionals want for you to feel comfortable and just get everything you enjoy but of course in moderation is our favorite saying as registered nutritionists and dietitians <laughs> um nick what would be your take-home message today yes i mean i completely echo what you say Ree, but um, i mean i would say that so weight gain is caused by a multitude of different factors some of which are not in our control for example our genetics or our upbringing or even our environment to some extent so when it comes to weight loss, you have got to work within what we can control. And often that might be starting with sleep and stress, you know, not even touching diet. 
we have to acknowledge that not everyone is built to being a size 8 or 10. Um, however, when weight gain starts to impact on our health or, or, or on our quality of life, for example, when walking or standing becomes difficult, then there are options and support out there. So whether that is through commercial organisations like one-to-one support with a registered dietitian or nutritionist or even bariatric surgery, whether that's through the NHS or privately. So I just think it's about reaching out to a trusted healthcare professional that might be your GP and discussing it because there is support out there um, if that is what you need. Oh, Nick, well, I think this episode will have helped so many people listening. So thank you so much for coming on Food for Thought today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. If you are enjoying Food for Thought, you'll absolutely love our up and coming episodes. So if you don't already subscribe, then make sure that you click to be the first to hear it every Monday. It would be brilliant as well if you have the time to leave a review and that would mean that we could reach higher highs in the charts and that would result in hopefully helping more and more people. For more information about My Retrition Clinic, books, healthy recipes and so much more, please visit retrition.com and follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and TikTok. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.